Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Well, this week, it is time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories that you've seen in the headlines, and a lot has occurred this past month. So we've got a big crew with us today, and as always, we begin with General David Deptula. Hey, Slick. Great to be here. Awesome to have you, sir. Now, we also have our space expert, Charles Galbraith, here with us as well. So, Charles, welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage. Thanks, Slick. Great to be back. All right. And bringing in our Washington experts, we have Todd Sledgeharmer with us. Thanks, Slick, and always a pleasure. Great having you here, as always. And also, Anthony Laser-Lazarski. Laser, welcome. Thanks a lot. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. And we also have Mike Dom with us, our China expert. So, Mike, welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage. Thanks, Slick. And now rounding us out, last but certainly not least, is Mark Gonzo-Gunzinger. Gonzo, welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage. Hi, gang. All right. As we mentioned, we have so much to dive into here, so let's just go for it. So laser and sledge, the Hill continues to drive everything these days, and Congress has just passed another continuing resolution. And on one hand, it's better than a government shutdown, but extending that into 2024 is really going to cause some serious pain for the services, given that they're locked into 2023 funding levels. So can you give us some insight on this? Yeah, Slick, I think you're absolutely correct. What we have right now is better than a shutdown, but not by much. It is truly the least worst option available. And just to recap for the folks out there, the government is currently open and funded under a laddered continuing resolution. And really what that means is four of the appropriations bills were extended through the 19th of January, with the remaining eight kicked out until 2 February. So it it buys Congress a little bit of of turning room there. Uh, But time is already tight. I mean, if you look at the calendar, there's really only 11 legislative days until Christmas, and then a lot of open days in January. So there's not a whole lot of time between the deadlines approach, uh, and hopefully we won't have the same drama we have in the past. You mentioned the funding levels. Those are, uh, yeah, they're a challenge for DOD, but I think equally important is the time that's lost. When DOD gets their funding three or six months late, it really impacts their ability to execute programs, to train on time, and do a lot of the things necessary to, to run the Department of Defense. The other thing I wanted to point out, too, is as this kicks further into calendar year 24, it's going to ripple into the FY25 budget requests. So let's say, for example, the 2nd of February is when an appropriations bill is finally signed and goes into law. If you do just kind of bar napkin math, it takes about 10 weeks from the time a budget's approved until OMB can do their thing and the administration gets their next budget up. So you're looking at the FY25 budget request going over to the Hill sometime in mid-April at the earliest. So it looks like we're going to lather, rinse, and repeat in FY25. Wow. Yeah, it's re- really tough to hear you You break it down like that. Now, what about this 1% sequester we keep hearing about? Given the mandatory personal funding and other non-negotiable accounts, I'm hearing that could essentially translate into an 18% cut for procurement and readiness accounts, and it just seems catastrophic. All right. 
So the Fiscal Responsibility Act states that if all 12 appropriations bills aren't enacted by 1 January, then there will be a 1% cut across the board for both non-defense and defense spending, putting us at 99% uh, of our current spending levels, If and that starts on 30 April. So what they did this was to try to force Congress's hand to make sure that they passed the appropriations bills by October 1st, or at least by the end of the year, and that hasn't happened. And now we've pushed all the way out till uh, January and February. So now we look at the potential translation up to an 18% cut. When we look at a 1% cut across defense, but then we fence off uh, personnel, that'll raise the other cuts up to 5%. But that 1% then raising up to 5%, you also have to look at inflation at 3.4%, an additional 2% for uh, defense inflation, 3% increase in fuel costs, and then increased costs for procurement, and personnel costs. And all of that brings us up toward 10 to 15%. There's also a study that recently came out that said that the FY24 budget as is before all the cuts and increases was already 3% lower than it should have been. And that gets us up toward almost 18%. So yes, it will have a devastating effect. And it's not just the 1% cut, not just the feds that gets it up to five, but it's all the other percentages that will hit our defense spending. Yeah, well, Laser, again, thanks for breaking that down. And I hate to ask you to bring out your crystal balls here, but you know, how does this resolve and, and what are your predictions? Well, I'm going to be a little bold on this one, and I'm going to predict that there will not be another continuing resolution. That when we hit the two trigger dates, the 19th of January, and then more importantly, the 2nd of February, uh, we will see all 12 appropriations bills. What is playing out right now on Capitol Hill is the, the House and Senate leadership are trying to come to an agreement on what the top line numbers are going to be. And I think you can expect that they will be consistent with what was agreed to in June under the Financial Responsibility Act. So the numbers are going to be a little bit higher than what the House of Representatives marked to in their appropriations bills. Once those top line numbers are established and agreed to, I think the appropriations committees will be able to get through their bills pretty quickly and then get them into conference. And I would fully expect that you're going to see a couple, two, maybe three minibuses to finally get them across the chamber floors there before the deadlines. I think that's a big picture that uh, the way it's going to play out. But there are some wild cards there. There's both the Ukraine aid and the uh, aid to Israel. Those are going to be tied to border security. I think that politically that's good for both parties, and I think it will happen. So you'll see those aid packages moving forward. And then I know a lot of people are talking about what's the future of Speaker Johnson if, if they go back to the higher funding levels of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. I think the adults in the Republican conference have told the Freedom Caucus that Speaker Johnson's the most conservative voice that you're going to get. And if you try to repeat what you did with McCarthy, then we are going to go with some type of a unity speaker. We will get somebody that both the Republicans and the Democrats can agree to. And then that would make it unpalatable for the Freedom Caucus altogether. So I think Speaker Johnson's fairly safe, and I, I think he's going to be able to move these bills and then aggressively roll into FY25. I agree with everything Sledge said. However, a couple little things to add. That agreement that we have with our budget deal for the Fiscal Responsibility Act, what they set for the cap for defense and non-defense well, it looks like defense had a bump up and we had more of a cut on non-defense. 
And there were some budget deals trickery in there that they're going to have to work out because there was an additional 54 million that may be going into non-defense funds and that's caused some of the problems. So I agree. I think they're going to go back to what they agreed upon in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, but they're going to have to get that worked out before the end of December because we've been told that committee staff need to be ready to work over the recess because you have two weeks in January of session time when Congress is back before the first deadline in 19 January, and then another two weeks to get the rest of the bills done on the 2nd of February. The other thing is, Sledge said this, they're going to be minibuses, and they're not worked independently. So when that top line comes down, then they set the top lines for all the other bills, and they work all the other bills. They may have two separate dates on the end of the CR, but they're all going to be worked at the same time. And the one thing that uh, we hadn't mentioned is we're supposed to have the president's budget come out the first Monday of February. And what we're hearing, it's going to be at least two weeks late because of delays that we're having on trying to get the FY24 bills done. I'm optimistic like Sledge. I think they'll get it done, but it is not going to be easy. And there's, they really need to start working it now. They can't work till they come back in January. Copy all, guys. And if you had to give advice to top defense officials about what this is breaking and, and why that matters, what would you offer? And essentially, point blank, I'm just not sure members of Congress and the public really get how bad this is. You know, we, Sledge and I have been up on up here for a long time, and we've had and have great members of our military come out by explaining what's going on with the military, with our aging military. General Deftool is one of them. The Congress knows that the public is, has heard it. However, we're competing for funding in a resource-restricted environment, and there are multiple national priorities. And so there are, while most members get it and understand what we're telling them, some members don't, and they will never understand it because they have other priorities. And we are a victim of our own success. How many times have we had members come up and say, if we can't get this funding, this is going to happen? Or I think what General Dempsey said, that we're at the jagged edge. But yet there isn't a service member out there that isn't going to do everything they can to ensure mission success over and over again. We look, we're keeping 60-year-old bombers flying, 40-plus-year-old fighters. We keep proficient, we're keeping people proficient, maybe you can say on the jagged edge, flying less hours than we've ever did. We talked about how many hours, well, we, we used to make fun of the Soviets when they'd fly once a week and we were flying four or five times a week. And we continually mitigate risk and do more with less with older equipment. So we're telling Congress, hey, we're, we're, we need more. We, we, can't, we can't do our mission with this aging equipment, with this smaller force, but yet we continue to do it. And we're going to continue to do it until a tragedy highlights those shortfalls in training personnel equipment. And, and I'm not wishing a tragedy. I mean, we, we've seen some accidents that are due to lack of training or equipment uh, that's malfunctioned because it's older. But sadly, I think that's what it's going to take uh, for Congress to understand where we're at. I think we need to avoid, though, the doom and gloom. Don't oversell the threat and don't undersell our capabilities. It always had worked best when members and the most respected people coming up on the Hill are the service members because they're out in the field, they're in the, in the AORs, and they can come back and tell the members and the staff exactly what's going on. 
but you need to come back with a level of risk saying, listen, here's what we need. And if we get less, there's this is where the risk goes up and this is what you are going to have to accept as Congress. But for coming up to the Hill, they need to come up to the Hill. They need to provide the facts. They need to be honest up front. I know it feels like it's falling on deaf ears, but we just need to continue to bring our members up. It's also important to bring some of our younger members up. And I think our fellows, defense fellows are doing an outstanding job, but we just need to communicate with Congress. I, I, they are listening. They do understand, but we can't stop explaining what's going on, but definitely avoid the doom and gloom and explain what the risk is if it doesn't get funded. Yeah. Well, let me jump in there and just say, Hey, I, I get it. You don't avoid the doom and gloom, but the fact of the matter is we're going to get our asses kicked when we get into the next fight. What's going to happen is, as you said, not as indelicately as I'm saying, is they need to understand we're going to lose the next major regional conflict if, in fact, the Congress continues to neglect investment in defense. The Air Force is in a nosedive. I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it until I get someone's attention. We're the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready we've ever been, and we're on track to get even smaller. So when are you going to wake up, Congress and American people, and, oh, by the way, presidential candidates? Because you're on track to create the conditions for a disaster. Yeah, sir. I mean, it's one of those things that this could be definitely a separate podcast in the future just to talk about readiness comparison from a pilot training and execution standpoint. I do want to move on, though, to one brighter note. So, Gonzo, I want to bring in here because the B-21 made its first flight and now it's flying out of Edwards Air Force Base, which is totally awesome. And Secretary Kendall was true to his word, saying that the next time we saw it, after rollout, it was prepping for this flight and taking to the sky. So it's a huge accomplishment. So can you walk us through why this matters and what we can expect over the next coming months? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with why the B-21 matters. Deterring a Chinese or Russian act of aggression, that's a core requirement of our national defense strategy. Now, that means our military must be able to respond within hours, not days or months, begin striking thousands of mobile targets like armored vehicles, amphibious shipping, and, and service action groups that uh, may be in an enemy's assault force. Only stealthy bombers have the long ranges, large weapons payloads, and survivability to do that. But the problem is, DOD decimated its bomber force since the Cold War, which is it's now a third of the size of forces that have turned the Soviet Union. Frankly, we need at least 300 bombers on the ramp to meet the Air Force's global operation requirements, with B-21s making up about two-thirds of that force. That's more than double what we have on the ramp today. But it's also important to maintain a technical edge over peer adversaries, and that requires periodically modernizing our major warfighting systems. Now, our Air Force acquired a new fighter or a bomber design about every two years during the Cold War to keep pace in the Soviet Union. But since then, the Air Force has fielded a single new combat aircraft design every 10 years on average, and that's not keeping pace. So for me, the B-21's first flight is the start of a long overdue plan to rebuild our bomber force. In the next few years, we can expect uh, more B-21 flight tests, hopefully initial operational capability after enough uh, bombers are on the ramp. And then a year or two later, certification for nuclear missions. One last major caveat, 
what we can expect to see next in that program could easily be driven by shunning funding shortfalls, as we just discussed, the result from uh, continuing re resolutions. The B21 program is now at a critical junction. It's just too important for our nation's security to let budget shortfalls delay it. Congress is squarely in control of that risk. Yeah, well said, Gonzo, and thanks for that. General Deptula, I want to get back to you because for far too long, the Air Force hasn't bought enough aircraft leaving requirements unmet. And, and you've lived this up close and personal with the B-2, the F-22, and the C-17. So why do we need to get this right this time? Well, bombers fundamentally bring unique options to the combatant commands. The kind of range and payload that's absolutely necessary to wage decisive campaigns over the long distances that allow us to outstick our adversaries or originate from outside their zone of attack or penetrate to the depths that are necessary with reusable capability not available or affordable by any other means. Now, our current bomber force is really old, as Gonzo alluded to. Over two-thirds of it predates the invention of the World Wide Web with the newest B-52 produced before the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't know if they even teach that in elementary schools anymore, but for historians out there, they'll know what I'm talking about. And we got B-1s rolling off the line 40 years ago. Even stealth B-2s are 30 years old, but we only have 20. So the B-21 represents a generational opportunity to fundamentally reset America's long-range strike capabilities with modern, stealthy, information-age aircraft, all the kind of attributes it's going to take to penetrate enemy airspace, accomplish the mission, and then get home safe. But it, we need far more than 100 of these aircraft. If our Air Force is going to have the capacity to meet the needs of the National Defense Strategy, Gonzo mentioned 300 total. I'd say 300 B-21s as a goal. Here, now, here. we don't need to mention, I mean, you know, we don't have to decide on a number today. Fact of the matter is we need to get this airplane out operational and start producing it. We ought to be thinking about doubling the tooling required to increase the production rate, but that's another subject. But first flight of the aircraft is a key juncture in that process. Uh, this is also a key example of why continuing resolutions are so bad. The B-21 is moving, but the funding profile is indexed for where it was a year ago. This is going to cause challenges. And Congress needs to recall that this isn't necessarily just an Air Force or industry issue alone. It's totally within Congress's control, and it's self-imposed. Again, couldn't agree uh, more with what you've said of, of the importance here. You know, I want to also highlight uh, and ask Gonzo, you know, why does buy rate matter? Yeah, from a deterrence perspective, from a war fighting perspective, we can't wait until the late 2030s for the B-21 for, forced to uh, be fully operational capable, which means there are enough bombers on the ramp with uh, trade air crews and maintainers to perform the combat missions. The hard truth is the threat of a great power conflict exists today and will continue to grow this decade. We've all heard DoD and congressional leaders voice their concerns China could be ready to launch an attack in the Western Pacific as soon as uh, 2027. The problem is 
our military modernization clock is running slower than China's. Instead of building up our bomber force over the next decade, it's actually going to decrease from 141 aircraft today to about 133 tails by 2033. Part of the problem is the B-21's planned acquisition rate, which will slowly ramp up to a high of about 10 per year you know, around the mid-2030s. That's half the max planned rate for our last four new bomber programs. And another problem is the Air Force will retire its B-1s and B-2s as it accepts B-21s. The first stealthy B-2 can be flown to the boneyard within the next two years. So why this build down before build up approach? The answer is easy. The Air Force doesn't have enough budget, enough bomber crews, enough maintainers and other personnel to keep its old bombers on ramp and transition to new B-21s. So the Air Force will not be able to support a Global Strike Command requirement to maintain all current bombers in the force until the B-21 is fully operational capable. That doesn't have to be the case. Rebuilding our nation's long-range strike force to deter China this decade will require the Congress to increase the Air Force's budget so it can double B-21 production as quickly as possible. But the Air Force is going to have to ask for those resources, and I don't think this administration will allow it to do so. Got it, Gonzo. Thanks so much. Well, as we mentioned, Edwards is a super busy place these days, and the T-7 Next Generation Trainer just showed up there too. So why is this a big deal? And General Deptool, I want to get started with you. Uh, well, the main reason it's such a big deal is the Air Force faces a perennial pilot shortfall. 2,000 fighter pilots short. And this has been going on for years. And frankly, if it's not addressed soon, this is going to be a causal factor in losing our next war. Folks have to come to face with reality. Now, while there are many reasons for this shortfall, a modern airframe is part of it. T-38H, the current advanced trainer, was designed in the 1950s, and most were procured during the Vietnam War. Student pilots have been wearing them hard ever since. That's over 50 years of hard use. They were never supposed to last that long, and some haven't. Air Education and Training Command just lost two squadrons of T-38s due to a shortage of engines because the parts are not made anymore. So, worn-out aircraft translate to fewer cockpits to flow pilots through training. Plus, the training afforded by a jet that qualifies for Social Security is way behind the times. To this point, F-22s and F-35s are information age machines. The entire way in which they function is optimized around sensors, processing power, and digital flight systems. That's not how the T-38 was built. It was designed as a precursor for jets like the F-100 and the F-105, stick and rudder types with basic gun sights and manual bombing systems. It's like comparing a landline phone to a smartphone. Sure, you can talk on both, but they're fundamentally different in terms of capability. And our training needs to reflect that. And add on top of that, sustaining T-38s is really expensive. It's like keeping an old car on the road. That then diverts resources away from other priorities. And we dig ourselves even a greater resource hole. So we need to get the T-7 on board ASAP so we can start training more pilots. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree, sir. And Sledge and Laser, I know you both flew the T-38, so thoughts on this? And I'd imagine this program cuts to why a CR is so bad. Key thing is we need to get the T-7 out there ASAP and get them out there in the numbers that are required to make sure that we train our pilots. Um, the 38, both Sledge and I started flying them back in the early 1980s. I was able to, I flew them again, uh, both advanced and down at Moody Air Force Base. And as General Deptula had said, sustaining those aircraft were very difficult, started developing more wing cracks, couldn't replace canopies. So we have an aircraft that cannot be sustained. But then with the T-7, it's not just the aircraft, but it's the entire training system that comes with it. And if you look at the uh, simulators uh, and, and how we train on those, and then making it easier from the pilot to go from that aircraft into our advanced aircraft where everything looks very similar and they're used to it, it makes us a better, a better air force and a more capable air force overall. The problem is if we don't get these T-7s out there in numbers, if we go on a CR, we have reduced budgets, then we're not going to be able to procure these aircraft in the numbers we need as fast as we need, which is going to further impact our pilot shortage. And the other thing we need to do is make sure that we have the transition plan out there so that when we uh, brought in the T-6s, we stood up another installation so we can transition quicker. We also need to bring more pilots back to be instructor pilots because we need more pilots trained so we can get them out of the field so we can get that 2000 number down. Yeah, I think uh, everyone's hit the programmatic piece pretty hard there on the impact of a CR. What I would like to talk a little bit about though is, it's remarkable, but the Department of Defense and, and the Air Force as well have gotten very, very skilled at handling a CR. They know that since fiscal year 97, so 1996, that part of the federal government has started under CR each of those years. And after a while, you start to get a little bit cynical. And you really think if my board of directors doesn't care, they're not willing to commit the resources that we need on time, then you know, you're going to go, well, what's the point? So I think there's a, there's a leadership part here. Congress needs to step up. They need to adequately fund the Department of the Air Force to do its mission, and they need to get a budget done on time so the people out there that are responsible for the mission can execute. Okay, Charles, let's turn to space here. You were recently out at LA Air Force Base engaging with the SSC leadership and addressing the Shriver Forum. So what are some of your key takeaways? Yeah, so thanks. Uh, it was great to be back in LA and to re-engage with some old friends and, and uh, some mentors. So first, let me do a, a shout out to the Shriver chapter out there for hosting and to General Gutwine and to Chief Frazier for their for incredible hospitality and insight. What really impressed me the most was the pace of change going on at Space Systems Command. The delivery of capabilities, the transformation of the organization, the adjustments to the mindset, they are all happening at an incredibly fast rate. So that was, that was great to see because we do have to get after that threat. Another key element is the concept of fully burdened capabilities. And this point was made a few times throughout the event. And that is that Space Systems Command is delivering not just a weapon system, but also the training pipeline and the, the supporting infrastructure and the logistics to ensure that the capability is fully available and ready for operations. Uh, and then it's operations by military folks, not contractors provided. I know a lot of focus has been placed on the speed of the Space Development Agency and the Space RCO, and that is absolutely great. But when it comes to military-operated capabilities, it's Space Systems Command that's doing the, the, the bulk of the delivery there. 
There was some also discussion on integration mission deltas. I know that General Saltzman laid this out during the airspace and cyber conference back in September. I had a great opportunity to meet with one of the new commanders of the PNT Delta provisional, and he is a senior material leader, an acquisition professional, but assigned to Space Operations Command. And so he's responsible for operations of, of GPS, as well as procurement and sustainment activities for the next five years. There will be a corresponding systems delta that focuses on five years and beyond for PNT. So that, that was really uh, great to, to see that coming to fruition. Um, there was a ball as well, and there were some awards given out. The first set were the, the Fight Tonight Awards that had a, a Space Systems Command. And these are um, initiatives brought forward by basically anybody at Space Systems Command. And they, they provide a pitch that to uh, a panel of general officers, and they allocate funding for that. The, the winner that they uh, announced was the Allied Exchange Environment. This is a, an opportunity for us to share space data that's, that's held within Unified Data Library with some of our allied partners uh, in the Pacific AOR, as well as to ingest their information into it. So that was great to see. Uh, another winner was uh, Space Time, which is an allocation of data and communications capabilities in a dynamic environment, multi-domain, cross-domain environment. What was really interesting about this one is it was pitched by a first lieutenant, a 24-year-old first lieutenant who actually won this area. So that, that was great. There were also a couple uh, of awards given out to some senior leaders for their incredible work. General Purdy got an award for his, his efforts with the 45th Launch Delta, but I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the award given to uh, General D.T. Thompson, of course, the Vice Chief of Space Operations. Uh, it recognized his incredible contributions and his continued leadership. Uh, this is a guy who's been in the service for 38 years. He has been the Vice Chief of Space Operations from the beginning of the service. His leadership has been incredible. Um, but he was due to retire uh, a few months ago, and he is still hanging on because of the delays uh, that the Senate has put forward in the uh, adjudication and appointment of presidential appointees for general officers. And so if I could make a plea out there, let's get these things done. Let's get these folks confirmed so that their replacements can take their positions and the great leaders like General Thompson can enjoy a well-deserved retirement. This has been going on for far too long. Let's, let's move this bolt. Well, thanks for that, Charles. I appreciate it. And we talk about it a lot in the context of the air domain, but what does this current CR mean for space? Yeah, so listening to the discussion about what I call a geriatric Air Force versus the, the preschool Space Force, as you are developing a new service and trying to fill new capabilities, the impact of a CR is even more profound, I think, because you're unable to do the new starts and develop the capabilities that you absolutely need. The, the ramp up in terms of budget for the Space Force as it was growing is held to a halt under a CR and actually goes backwards under that 1% reduction that we talked about earlier. I, I hope Sledge and Laser are, are right that uh, we're not going to have a CR, but if we did have a, a year-long CR, it would equate to a 13% reduction in planned growth for the Space Force and would stop an 800-person uh, increase in the, in the Space Force size. So imagine telling a four-year-old, hey, uh, I know you plan to grow next year, but what, what I need you to do is, is not grow and, in fact, shrink a little bit. That's just absurd. This is a new service to meet a challenging threat, and we have to enable it to grow.
All right, well, December marks the fourth anniversary of the Space Force's founding. So how do you rank where the service stands from a challenges and opportunities set of perspectives? And it's been a super busy four years. Yeah, it absolutely has been incredibly busy. And that just speaks to the urgency that we have to get after this threat. Everybody in the Space Force recognizes the need to deliver new capabilities, to make our systems more resilient and able to withstand a war-finding domain. Uh, of, of space. I think the delivery of capabilities from the Space Development Agency, Space RCO, and Space Systems Command has been incredible. I mean, we, we saw uh, in September the launch uh, of a capability within about 27 hours of a call-up in Victus Knots. That, that's incredible. I know Starcom has been laser-focused on training our, our guardians to contend in a contested environment, and Spock remains absolutely focused on the ability of delivering capabilities and services as well as integrating those uh, into a joint fight. So all of that was in the context uh, of the competitive endurance framework of avoiding operational surprise, denying first mover advantage, and responsible counterspace campaigning. I, I think it really just shows the level of thought and ingenuity going into the types of capabilities and the efforts the Space Force is putting forward to get after that threat, again, primarily from China. It's just been an incredibly uh, busy four years, and it's not going to let up. It's just going to continue to accelerate. Yeah, I totally agree. General Deptula and Gonzo, Secretary Kendall remarked that GBSD, the Intercontinental uh, Ballistic Enterprise Modernization Program, is facing some challenges. So what's your perspective? Well, first, this is a no-fail program. The Air Force, Department of Defense, and Congress absolutely has to back it. It's the bedrock of deterrence. And anyone who questions its cost or value should consider what life would look like without it. Anyone like what they see in Ukraine? Deterrence matters. Now, this is a very complex program. It's not just a new ICBM. It's also new silos. It's a new command and control enterprise, new helicopter to deal with the missile fields and a lot more. And we put off modernization for so long that it's now make or break. So this must happen. The program was built with the ability to absorb some bumps in the road. That said, this is another program that a continuing resolution cripples, further endangering American lives. And Gonzo, any thoughts to uh, add on that? Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to footstop that this is a no-fail program. Now, we previously talked about how budget shortfalls forced the Air Force to maintain its aging combat systems well past the plan survives, and the Miniman 3 is the poster child for this. It now intends to begin replacing Miniman 3s with Sentinels in uh, 2030, and that's an amazing 50 years past the Miniman 3's initial plan service life. It's an absolute must-do because the Miniman 3's credibility as a deterrent is eroding. That missile was designed in the 1960s for a threat environment that's very different than the environment that exists today. Some of its components are no longer made, and the total number of operational ICBM missiles will decline below STRATCOM's requirement beginning around 2030 due to reliability issues and, of course, periodic testing. Watching, yeah, the Sentinel program has its growing pains, and that's not surprising, as General Diptula said, given its scale, scope, and the fact that it's the first U.S. land-based ICBM replacement program in more than 50 years. Many of those growing pains are due to supply chain issues, staffing challenges, and 
and other problems that are also common to many of DOD's other major acquisition uh, initiatives. Yeah, could not agree more. When you're updating a 50-year-old weapon system, there might be a few stumbles along the way, but uh, nothing catastrophic. I want to turn to Charles here quickly because you began your career in the ICBM career field. And so what are your thoughts on why modernization matters? Because I know as an operator, you have a very different perspective than someone who's who's looking from the outside in. Yeah, well, well first, I agree with what General Detool and Gonzo have said about Sentinel being a no-fail program, as well as the, the need to modernize. I was on missile crew in the mid-90s. And so we were operating uh, Minuteman 3s that were fielded in the early 70s. And when I got there, we were using the weapon system that was from the early 70s. We did a transition to the REACT capability there in the mid-90s. And, and we joked then that, hey, we finally have some 1980s technology to operate our, our ICBMs with. But here we are 30 years later, and we're, we're having some delays in the delivery of the new capability. You know, as General Tatula said, this is a complicated problem. And we have to, to fill these capabilities. It, deterrence absolutely matters. The fact that uh, ICBMs remain an integral part of the triad, along with bombers and, and the submarine fleet, can't be understated or, or forgotten. We've got to push forward to make sure that these capabilities uh, are there to, again, provide that credible return so that we don't have to worry about nuclear warfare in the same way we did back in the 70s and 80s during the Cold War. And that's because our deterrent capability is as strong as it is today. Awesome. Thanks for that. I, again, want to shift gears back to General Deptula. The news has covered a few recent incidents where enemy forces have interfered with and shot down MQ-9s, and that's bringing out skeptics about the aircraft. What are your thoughts there? Well, first and foremost, Slick, on what planet does a loss or two equate to the failure of an entire system? How many tanks have been lost in Ukraine? Are we shutting down the tank plant in Lima, Ohio? I guess not, because 6,000 tanks in U.S. Army inventory must not be enough. The reality is that any weapon system can be targeted with the right set of capabilities. The question is whether the risks of operating the system are justified. And in the case of the MQ-9, they are. We're conducting operations with them around the globe, and the loss rate is incredibly low, while the mission effects they deliver are incredibly high. As an uninhabited aircraft, no lives were at risk. That's huge. Compare that to images we've seen when manned aircraft have been forced down. Remember the EP-3 incident over Hanan Island? It was a diplomatic fiasco. Technologies exist that can make the MQ-9 far more robust in defended airspace. And it's time that we look at those upgrades. The systems exist. It's just a matter of procuring them. The reality is that we own a lot of MQ-9s. They present significant value. We have few alternatives to conduct these missions, so it's time to adapt them to the threats that we see today. Yeah, absolutely, sir. You know, the MQ-9 also made some news with one story suggesting that the Canadian purchase was going to be delayed by three years as some technology necessary for the Northern Tier Ops matured. Is this true? Short answer is no. We chased it down. We think there's some cross wires in that story. The delivery date has not changed. The MQ-9Bs provide a smart, long-endurance surveillance capability for the Canadians, especially for monitoring and detecting maritime activity. So, bottom line, in a greater need to fill gaps in air surveillance, uninhabited aircraft, 
makes so much sense for northern tier air surveillance, sensing for non-dwell periods over vast ranges in a hostile climate. There will be an air surveillance gap in the Arctic for a long time as we await the modernization of the northern warning system. So this is part of the solution. Oh, well, thanks for chasing that down, sir. It's, it's good to hear that that is uh, staying on track. Well, we always talk about Ukraine and, you know, so often the news is negative. However, there's been a couple of bright spots, especially when it comes to helping uh, illustrate why we must drive enhanced resilience, capacity, and innovation on the industrial base. So folks often talk about building more artillery shells and things like that, which I get, and it matters, but we also need higher end systems. And to that end, there was an interesting update from Ursa Major about solid rocket motor technology. So why does that matter? Well, Ursa Major unveiled a new technology that they called Lynx. It allows them to 3D print a solid rocket motor. Think about that. This is incredibly complex, and traditional production methods are time-insensitive plus expensive. So the new technology affords the ability to help drive down costs and drive production at a faster rate. That's exactly the kind of attributes that we need to see with our production base. And this isn't the only bright spot. Consider what groups like AeroVironment's switchblade loitering munition developments that we've seen with air and missile defense. I mean, Raytheon's efforts with the National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System were incredible. And the list goes on. There's the Phoenix system and others. The takeaway is that we can clearly innovate and produce. We should be proud of that. What should keep us awake at night is that the Congressional and Department of Defense bureaucracy is not evolving to keep pace. Consider that most of the munitions transfers to Ukraine and Israel come out of existing stocks, not new buys. That's because the contracting process on the government side won't speed up. Why is it taking so long to work F-16 training? Same deal. It's all about process. Why have we stood in the way of transferring more capable UABs to Ukraine? Again, process and a little bit of politics thrown in there too. We'll lose wars in the future if we move at the speed of bureaucracy. The speed of war with lives on the line demands more. I'm looking forward to see our new chairman, General C.Q. Brown, put his words, accelerate change or lose, into action across all the services. Because if he doesn't, we will lose. Well, Mike, let's get this China update from you. President uh, Biden met with Xi Jinping, president of the People's Republic of China. So why is this important? And what were the results of the dialogue? And how would you grade the effort? Well, so like this was the first time President Biden and President Xi had met since last year. And it just goes to show if you set expectations low enough, it's super easy to exceed them. I think U.S.-China relations have gotten so bad that the ultimate purpose of this meeting was just not to have a bad meeting. But for domestic purposes, both sides needed a win from the meeting, so both sides engineered a win. The White House readout stated that the U.S. and China are decidedly in competition. The Biden administration heralded agreements on policing illegal drugs and fentanyl exports from China, as well as the resumption of high-level military-to-military talks. The two presidents also agreed to agree that they should reduce risks associated with artificial intelligence, but they're there wasn't actually any agreement on artificial intelligence or its use in military systems. 
But what I thought was super interesting was that the Chinese readout was so much different from the U.S. readout, with Xi Jinping actually rejecting President Biden's premise that, that China's in competition with the United States. Chinese media coverage gave Xi Jinping credit for something she was calling the San Francisco vision, based on five pillars that include managing differences and beneficial cooperation between the U.S. and China. But while White House talking points don't even mention Xi Jinping's San Francisco vision, so it makes you wonder whether the two presidents were at the same meeting. The Chinese readout paints Xi Jinping as a responsible actor managing the U.S.-China relationship, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Because Xi Jinping has been facing these economic headwinds at home. Uh, he's been under some pressure from other Chinese leaders to better manage frictions in the U.S.-China relationship, and this is going to allow him to open some bandwidth to deal with domestic issues in the People's Republic of China. So as I mentioned, she agreed to resume high-level military to military talks, which is something the U.S. has been asking for since China suspended military talks in August 2022 after Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan. And, and I think this is a positive development, the resumption of military to military talks. And I've said this before, look, if the U.S. and Chinese militaries aren't talking and don't have an open line of communication, bad things can happen. If you're the Indo-PACOM commander and two airplanes go bump in the night, you want to have, have some assurance that your Chinese counterpart will pick up the phone when you call. Now, I don't think we've entered a, a new era in U.S.-China military relations. Xi Jinping is just forcing the Chinese military to play nice, at least for the moment, and we're getting back to something resembling normal. In current events, the Chinese military has been in some clashes with Myanmar rebels along their southern border, and Beijing has also been protesting U.S. and Australian freedom of navigation operations and exercises that we've been doing with the Philippines in the South China Sea. Coming up, though, we should definitely keep an eye on the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan's national elections are happening on January 13, 2024, just after the new year. The current Taiwan president, Tsai Ing-wen, she's term-limited and can't run for re-election. But most analysts expect that her Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, will retain the presidency. So the DPP is not the party that Beijing would prefer to have in office, since its candidates are pushing for closer ties to the U.S. and are more, let's say, independence-minded than their rival party, the KMT, which favors more cooperation with Beijing. The Chinese military probably won't conduct a show of force before the January elections because that would just drive Taiwan voters into the arms of the DPP, the party that Beijing doesn't want to win. However, it's entirely possible, if not likely, that we may see some sort of military demonstration in the Taiwan Strait in late January, just so Beijing can remind the new government in Taipei that the Chinese military is ready to respond to any rumblings of Taiwan independence. So, Nightmare scenario prediction for January 2024 is more political dysfunction in Washington over the budget and a potential crisis brewing in the Taiwan Strait. You heard it here first. Stay tuned. More as it happens. Everybody, thanks so much for your time today. It's all the time we have. I know this has been a long podcast, but a lot of updates. So General Deptula, Mike, Gonzo, Charles, Sledge, and Laser. It's been awesome catching up with everyone. Thanks very much to our audience. Have a great set of holidays and a Merry Christmas. Same. Wishing everybody a Merry Christmas, safe holidays. Yeah, thanks, Slick. Uh, happy holidays. Always a pleasure. Thanks. I'll see you next year. Thanks, Slick. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. 
I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.